this is undisciplined. Academic by nature, undisciplined in practice. I am Dr. Karee Banton, Director of African and African American Studies and Professor of History at the University of Arkansas. The podcast here, we will push the confines of your traditional academic disciplines and like the subjects of its concerns, African and African American studies, you know, survive under the most terrible of circumstances, but achieve rigor and become even more robust because of it. And so in this podcast, we will unveil how the objectives of African and African American studies can be found in the everyday, if you'll just look. Now let's get into it. When we think about activism and the different people who have played a role in activism, people from different parts of the country, you know, all over who have lobbied, you know, local governments and whatnot to make changes for African-American civil rights, a lot of them are not very familiar with Ella Baker. A lot of people know Martin Luther King. Of course, he deserves to be honored. You know, lots of students come. They know the back and forth. I have a dream and all that. The life of Ella Baker, however, um, presents a a different kind of model of leadership and kind of give us a little bit of insights into, you know, the kind of long and patient hard work that goes into building social movements. We don't think about that daily drudgery right? What people on the ground have to do, right? We remember the charismatic people that King, you know, is remembered for being a powerful speaker and a preacher. I mean, he moves rooms. He shakes stadiums. You know, he's a rousing artist. But um, a political strategist, the people behind the, the kind of tactics and strategizing King, you know, was known for that in terms of how he moved and organized those kinds of uh, stuff. But Baker, if you come to know her, she would call our attention to a more specific role of that of the organizer. Ella Baker has been instrumental in many organizations that you know that was a part of the civil rights movement. You might know a lot of the men who contributed, as I said, but she stands out of, as one who defied the gender roles of the time and elevated and sought to highlight the contributions that women made. There would never have been a SNCC without Ella Baker. She had served as the executive uh, secretary for the SCLC. That's another one. Students are so pain when I give them these acronyms, you know. And the SCLC was the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. She organized the founding conference of SNCC which was held at Shaw University in Raleigh. Uh, what, what's, what's the pron- proper pronunciation? Raleigh. 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 <laughs> uh, with my Patois accent, it's <laughs> in Raleigh, North Carolina um, in 1960. And she recognized that students were instrumental to, to the movement, right, and would become very influential in organizing the sit-in movement, bringing different leaders of the movement together to meet one another, and so on. Ella Baker persuaded MLK to put up $800 for the conference, for instance, and MLK uh, hoped they would become an SCLC student wing, right? That SNCC, the students would become an SCLC student wing. However, (laughs) being the strong woman that she was, 
Ella Baker encouraged the students to think about forming their own organization. Obviously, her work had come from her, you know, her work with um, the NAACP. She was the director of branches in the 1940s. Um, she had a network that she was able to use at her disposal. For instance, in the summer of 1960, she, w- she, she sent out Bob Moses, God rest his soul, to meet the NAACP leader, I'm Zeke Moore in Cleveland, Mississippi. And out of this meeting is how SNCC's first voter registration project would emerge. And her belief, her core belief was that organizing people meant that they could lead themselves. You don't need the elites. (laughs) You don't need the man (laughs) to be leading you. She said, who else is better qualified to articulate the needs of the people? Strong people don't need strong leaders, but facilitating this required extensive travel, conversation, meetings, essence of organizing. And that was what she did. When she spoke to a conference, Ella Baker told the student that their struggle was much bigger than a hamburger or a giant-sized Coke. She presented them with a bigger picture of what the movement was about. She was about helping people to empower themselves. And this is kind of a note we're trying to strike today for people to understand that. She organized these social activists to fight for themselves and to travel throughout the rural South, uh, spread this message, and mentored and directly influenced dozens of activists throughout her life. Many of them young people became a beloved figure. Many of them, um, obviously, SNCC organizers who were many decades her junior, felt her energy. You know, she declared that young people are the hope of any movement. They were the people who kept that spirit going. An average Baptist minister didn't really know the organization, but Ella Baker did. And the students sensed that about her and they listened to her. And because of that, the civil rights movement expanded because of her purview. Now, another person, another organizer, Bayard Rustin. At the zenith of the civil rights movement, it was Bayard Rustin. He was a pacifist. He was a gay man. Right, a part of the LGBT community, who Martin Luther King would look to in terms of all that nonviolent, passive resistance that was part of the influence that MLK had. So this organizer and strategist and black queer man, Bayard Rustin, he built and he executed. Nobody thinks about Bayard Rustin. 250,000 people came to the march on Washington and he executed all the details of this march on Washington. And, you know, even though we remember it for the I Have a Dream speech, I really feel like Bayard Rustin deserves some big ups because he created that platform for the mobilization that brought us what? The Civil Rights Act, 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Well, I'm certain you know this one, John Lewis. He was one of the speakers at the March on Washington. Of course, he gave his speech um, next to the I Have a Dream speech. But probably what you didn't know in terms of strategy and organizing, John Lewis was a part of SNCC. In thinking about how SNCC might, in creating their own organization, might have deferred from the SCLC's, MLK's organization, John Lewis wrote a speech that was so incendiary that the march organizers wouldn't let him give it as it was written that day. They had sent the speech to the Archbishop of Washington, D.C., who was scheduled to give the opening invocation. And when he received the speech, he freaked out. Like, what is... What is John going up there to say? So obviously there's all these arguments over John Lewis's speech. And even while 
other all the other speakers are up there trying to address the crowd they're huddled up at the back of the lincoln memorial trying to a philip randolph on mlk trying to like help john lois to tone down the rhetoric in his feet john lois is 23 at the time he got that young robust energy a philip randolph is 73 you know so the different tone a 73-year-old trying to get a 23-year-old to moderate the tone. But in the end, the group negotiated about a dozen changes. Sounds like me when I try to give my speeches. <laughs> like, don't say that. <laughs> you know, say that this way. <laughs> you know, the final version only came moments before Lewis took the speech. You know, there's a very fascinating thread about this on Twitter uh, at the handle student activism that highlights some of the changes that was made in the speech and all that transpired that day. So big up to student activism at student activism on Twitter for providing that thread. No, I said all of that because today we're thinking about a particular group of people who are invested in this kind of organizing and leadership development and coalition building here in Arkansas. And I'm talking about the Arkansas Public Policy Panel. According to the Arkansas Public Policy Panel, they organize communities to create infrastructure, to set goals, to develop action plans for better schools. We love that. Safer neighborhoods, that. And they're invited into communities where they help residents develop the tools to realize their visions of social justice, economic prosperity, accountable government, and improved quality of life. And they're currently at work in 15 communities in southern Arkansas. I am so very thrilled that today we have one of the, the representative of Arkansas Public Policy Panel with us here today. Mr. Osiris Bali. Mr. Osiris Bali, he's an artist as well as an activist who combined those passions for the arts and social justice to create a platform that he calls Liberation Arts. He has shared stage with some of my favorites, Outkast, Raekwon, oh no, <laughs> of the Wu-Tang Clan, okay? Bilal, Devin the Dude, Sonny Patterson, Jessica Kim Moore. His work has taken him all across Arkansas to engage communities around youth advocacy, voter engagement, social justice, racial equity, education, criminal justice reform. And he has done a lot with the Arkansas Citizens First Congress, ACLU of Arkansas. His specific role is the racial equity coordinator for the Arkansas Public Policy Panel. So we're going to be having a little talk with Mr. Bali today. So, Mr. Bali, welcome to Undiscipline. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm loving everything that y'all are talking about so far with the mentioning of all these uh, great leaders in our history. You know, Ella Baker, A. Philip Randolph, Byron Rustin. Yeah, it was. And John Lewis, man, it was. I'm just glad to be here with you all. I appreciate the opportunity to talk and chat. Yeah, but you 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 walking in those footsteps, my brother. Yeah, definitely, definitely uh, trying to uh, uh, carry on tradition. I'll say that carry on tradition. You know what I'm saying, and and uh, bring as much awareness as I can to the issues that are going on in our community and our in our world, and uh, just trying to lead by example, but also uh, remembering the the idea of saying Kofu and never forgetting where we come from and learning from our past so we can move forward. So. 
Can you tell me, what? how did you get into activism? What inspired your activism? As a child, I was always just interested. My favorite, one of my favorite hobbies was studying black history. Wow. Yeah, it was It was one of the things that I just loved a lot. Like, I would, you know, my Christmas list would always have, can I get a black history book or can I get a book on this person, that person? And so growing up, I just always was reading about people like Malcolm X, you know, Langston Hughes, many different people, Sada Shakur. Uh, and so I, I, I grew that passion for learning about my history and my parents uh, just made sure that they knew that their child had an interest in literature and in black literature in particular or just black history in particular. So they always were, it was never an argument to get a book, you know what I'm saying? Right. Beyond that, you know, I grew up and, you know, I still kept my love for, you know, black history and, and just social awareness. But it was some incidents in my, in my younger adulthood that kind of just uh, really made me uh, feel like that I had to do something to be a voice in my community. I had had some issues and I kind of was going down the wrong path. And so I felt that as much as I was a detriment to my community, I had to use the double and triple that energy to put something back to be productive and show that I was an asset towards my community. So one of my first times actually using my voice to actually be an asset to my community uh, I had a, a friend of mine who had an unfortunate incident where he was murdered and the community wasn't speaking up about like how the prosecutor should handle this in Lone Oak. And so I was leading protests and getting people, organizing people to like tell the prosecutor to reopen the investigation into his murder so they could file the proper charges. And when that happened, uh, I was just asked to do several different things at that time, speak at different rallies and lead some protests and marches for Trayvon Martin. And that's when I really got into like doing work in my community. And it just kind of just took off from there because I, I really didn't know that it was happening, that I was becoming an organizer, that I was becoming an activist. But it just kind of started happening. And my, my, uh, I had a knack for just expressing myself through social media and getting people to... Uh, talk about this issue and converge on the places. And I was just learning so much. I was learning as I was going. So, you know, it just kind of just happened by accident, but I actually developed a really big passion for it. And it kind of became my life and the work that I was doing. I'm kind of like you, uh, Saras. I've, I've been always, you know, been interested in, in like rebels in black history. So yeah. I was always like, yeah, buy me all the books. Yeah, give me the Malcolm X book. Give me all the rebel books, you know, to learn. And I think... Yeah. For a certain category of black people, I think that has been formative. I don't know if like, you know, people my age group who probably had Black Panther parents or, <laughs> you know what I mean? But they, they made sure that their kids were reading this kind of literature. Yeah, I mean, my parents probably didn't have an idea of how radical my mind was and what I was really into. You know, but uh, definitely, definitely I was reading a lot about uh, like the Black Panther Party I was reading about Black Liberation Army. I was heavily into Stokely Carmichael, uh, a.k.a. Kwame Ture. And I was learning about The Move, Mia Abu-Jamal, Jaleel Mother King. I was reading and learning so much about all of it. And I was coming across uh, so many different people. I was even talking to people like Ari Maredizan, who was with Cobra, who was a former Vietnam veteran that was now, that started pushing for reparations back in like the late 70s, early early 80s and so my mind my mind was everywhere and I was talking to so many different people and I was 
fairly young guy, so people just always seem to be intrigued by the fact, like, what got you into this? And I was just like, you know, hey, uh, got into it on my own. <laughs> yeah, well, for me, it, I, I think what I liked about that, which was those people seemed so strong, and I wanted to be like them. I didn't want to be perceived as a victim because I was a black person. And if you got that energy of Stokely Carmichael, you know, he was like black power. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I wanted to I wanted to um, be with that energy. And Malcolm X, just how proud he was to be a black person. I wanted to be like that. So that's what inspired me to read. I don't even think I was appreciating the literature. It was the energy, their energy that I was absorbing. Was it the same for you? Definitely. You know, um, just seeing that image on, you know, the television and, and on different videos, seeing Angela Davis with her afro and her fist in the air, being proud to be black, uh, reading the story and hearing the song about Asada Shakur. Like, even as a youth, I was really into visual art, too. And that's one of my things that I, my topics were always about black life. And my, a lot of my pictures depicted my, my love for the movement, for militant uh, for the black militants and, uh, you know, saying I was drawing pictures about saying power to the people, uh, black power, all of these things. And I would take my stuff to like portfolio days uh, <laughs> to different art, art schools and I would get these weird looks, you know, what I'm saying? because, you know, I would have paintings and colored pencil pieces and uh, all this stuff. And they would just be like, you really have a, a, a love for one particular topic. And it was like, stuff between hip-hop and black militant and uh, black power, you know what I'm saying? That was what it was all about, and this, that's just what impressed me so much with them developed the love for it, you know? Yeah, they probably thought you went to, like, a Black Panther summer camp or something. Like, well, how did this young man get so militant? <laughs> I, I don't know. If I, if you, if people ask my parents all the time, like... So what were y'all doing with him? And they were they would be like, you know, he just he just did his own thing, you know. He was kind of just his own person, his own self. Like they didn't do anything in particular. It was just I think part of it was when I was going to elementary and I loved school so much, it didn't really seem like real to me that people could do something unless they showed me somebody black was doing it as well. So they talked about an astronaut. I said, Well, are there any black astronauts? And where are the books on the black astronauts? If there was art, I want to see the black artists. Same thing with singers and mathematicians and scientists. I was like, who is the black person that's doing that? Yeah, because representation matters. Like, you wanted to see yourself in it, what they were talking about. Exactly. And luckily, I had some good teachers. And when I asked those questions, they didn't get scared. They kind of would just point me in the direction where I need to go and give me a name. And that's back in the day, a card catalog. So you really (laughs) had to have a a passion, (laughs) a passion for researching, you know what I'm saying? Like to go through a card catalog and like find a particular book that you wanted. Like now everything is just Google. Google pops up. But me, I I really took the time to find it. And I was a kid. So, you know, once I finally found what I was looking for, oh, man, you know, that was the reward was actually reading and researching and, you know, memorizing and understanding everything. And then I'm on to my next topic. How did you get involved in this line of work at the Arkansas Public Policy Panel? How you were activists, you talked about organizing protests and Trayvon Martin and all that. How did that then lead to the Arkansas Public Policy Panel? In my free time, like I said, I was doing a lot of work in the community as far as like protest, civic engagement and organizing different people and just 
making sure that I was a kind of like a guide when it came to like information in my community. But what I did for about four four years is uh, I worked with the youth. I had a 12 to 17 year old group with uh, the Boys and Girls Club and I helped develop that into one of the biggest, the biggest single 12 to 17 year program in the city of Little Rock. And how I did it was just do a number of different ways to help keep them engaged and want them to be doing something productive after school. So I focused on, you know, one, making sure that they had a place to where they could have tutoring and mentoring and education. And then I encouraged them to express themselves no matter how different it was through the arts. And we uh, had a program where we uh, encouraged them to go to the studio and, and, and focus on writing about different topics and expressing themselves, recording it, and learning the business of actually producing their music and publishing it. And then after that, my focus would be community. I helped lead uh, community dinners where we brought in different family members into the community and we all, we ate, but we talked about the topics that we wanted to uh, conquer in our communities as far as like the different issues. And so we had everything, people come from speakers that were people who were talking about the uh, school privatization effort here in Arkansas and giving out information and helping people get connected with the different groups who were fighting to save our public schools. We brought in, I brought in different people who talked about their careers as far as like uh, lawyers, uh, doctors, STEM. And also um, I encouraged the, the students to actually do something to give back to their communities and get their friends and their parents involved. And so with that like big community effort, I, I started to be known as a person who um, just genuinely had a, a love and respect for the community. And that kind of snowballed into me doing different things where I was doing different nights out, night outs for the youth where they was uh, staying out and doing, you know, just fun activities with me, as well as bringing on their parents a lot of times to do things in the community where we, you know, we were the ones putting on together the protests together. We were the ones who actually tried to establish some type of connection and rapport with the city to help over different issues as far as like ordinances with the city of Little Rock and uh, doing mass voter registration drive efforts with different volunteers. And so I became known as an activist in the community for doing those things, but also as an organizer because every effort that was it was something positive, I was able to just connect so many different people and, and, and just network and just be that kind of plug in, in, a, in a sense in the community. Can you tell us about the kinds of different groups that the Arkansas Public Policy Panels that you guys have been working with? Yeah, uh, we Arkansas Public Policy Panel has been working with a lot of different groups a lot of different groups over the last 50-something years. It started in 1963, and uh, it's been getting stronger and stronger ever since. But some of the groups we work with, we work with uh, Arkansas Coalition to abolish the death penalty. We work with uh, Arkansas uh, Coalition for Peace and Justice, State NAACP chapter, the Opportunity to Learn campaign, and uh, League of Women Voters. So it's a lot of different groups out there that uh, we work with around Arkansas on just different issues. And they mainly do that work through um, the uh, Citizens First Congress, which is a coalition building organization, their sister organization, that helps them uh, advocate during the legislative session. It's easy probably for us to imagine organizing the youth and maybe what fuels the youth activism that we've seen from the time of John Lewis um, with SNCC and, you know, to the now to Black Lives Matter. We see the youth at the forefront, right? They're marching because they're furious and, you know, the their rage 
that they cannot withhold, you know, it brings them together in a, in a real way and they leverage that as power in society to bring about change. So what, what is it that fuels the activist undertone here in, Ar- in Arkansas? I think what, what fuels it, fuels it is, is just like right now, people are starting to understand that a lot of these issues that we have in Arkansas, they affect everybody, uh, regardless of race and gender. And there's a lot of issues that need to be worked on. And I think that uh, people are starting to understand that you have to get out of this mindset, this mindset of uh, the two-party system. And just come together on a nonpartisan level and just work on the issues that really are attacking your community. Because a lot of this party loyalty is kind of causing people to shoot themselves in their <laughs> shoot themselves in their own foot. And so, what fuels it is, I think, just just that that grassroots organizer mentality of of getting boots on the ground and going to talk to people and. Um, just telling them about what's going on in their community. The things that are going on as far as on a local politics level don't get a lot of attention in the media a lot of times. And so it's kind of up to us as organizers and activists to go out there and spread the word about what people need to be knowing about. Uh, just this past legislative session, I want to say that there were like at least about 17 bills that were filed and passed for uh, that will be like new voting laws. And so... People are going to be in for a rude awakening even when they go to the ballot and start voting again because they're not going to be able to do some of the things that they have done in the past when it comes to absentee ballot voting and even voting on that that last Monday of early voting. You know what I'm saying? Those things have kind of just really been big, I'll say, 50-state strategies across all of the states. But here in Arkansas, it's so heavily favored for like certain people that, you know, saying a lot of those things would just easily pass without anybody just really advocating and being effective to like stop it and, and block those things. And so now I think that like people are getting back to that grassroots mentality of having boots on the ground, especially during the pandemic. People are finding out, finding new ways to be creative, to help organize and uh, doing things virtually. So a lot of more people are understanding that. And they have to, in the past, I don't think they really looked at it as much as like we have to get the youth involved if, they, if they're if they not involved. Now they're having to do that because they have, the youth have so much knowledge about using this technology and the innovative ways to actually connect with people that if your organization doesn't have somebody that's young, that's, that knows how to connect with people through social media, that knows about the latest happenings in the city and knows about different groups of people and where they're at, you know, if you don't have somebody in the organization that knows those things, you're lacking. And so, you know, people are having to actually go and talk to the youth and not just youth on in schools, but youth in the community and talking to them and seeing what they want. So a lot more listening sessions are happening so people can understand what's important to the to people and finding out the needs of the people. And it's helping the organizations become more well-rounded. So I think that grassroots approach is what's really starting to fuel people's participation in the political process again. You guys do coalition building between different groups, right? How do you, you know, get past those problems in terms of creating coalition if, you know, different groups of people have their own interests? And how do you create those coalitions? I'll speak like for Citizens First Congress, we have monthly caucus meetings for the people that are are part of that membership base. And And those meetings help determine the priority. So, we have a meeting for civil rights, election reform, for environment, education, and economic justice. And so for uh, at least a year and a half before those legislative sessions happens, every month, 
the priorities and the issues are constantly being discussed at all these caucus meetings. That process of actually talking year round to see what's going on in the communities and developing that rapport and understanding what community needs are, it helps out a lot because when we're talking about me personally, I'm in central Arkansas, so I don't, I'm not always connected to what's going on in northwest Arkansas or in southeast Arkansas. But when we're talking and I find out different issues that are going on in the communities, it gives me a better understanding of what the needs are in Arkansas as far as bills and laws and ordinances are. And so when you're talking every month and then we're doing our quarterly meetings and coming together and discussing what we've been doing over the past three, four months, it helps us to understand and gauge what's needed in the state. And so from that point on, we go to the coalition building part of it where we decide as, as different membership groups and we vote on our priorities. And that way we know that when the legislative session comes, we, we know we're going to be focusing on these priorities because these have been deemed the most important. It's always that phrase that comes to mind with me. Some people will sink the ship just because they can't be the captain. Right. And so, <laughs> yeah. You know, so when you have the understanding that, you know, uh, we're moving as a unit and, and, and we have that coalition power, that's how we're able to make the biggest impact. Egos are put to the side and the organizations can keep on doing the work that they've been doing without interference. And we can keep on doing the work collectively without hurting people's feelings, basically. That leads us now to, as our good brother Walter Rodney used to say, our segment called Grounding with My People. I want to talk about artists and social movements, right? And you know a lot of them. Billie Holiday, Strange Fruit, Woody Guthrie, This Land is Your Land, my homie, Harry Belafonte from my homeland, Common, Aretha, Marvin Gaye, Sam Cooke, N.W.A., Bruce Springsteen, Childish Gambino, and you, Mr. Bali. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I never thought I'd hear my name after hearing all those names. But, uh, <laughs> I got to big you I, up, I, man. I got to big you up. <laughs> I'll take it. I thank you. I appreciate it. Much love. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the artist and social movement goes together, hand in hand, right? We know that the queen of gospel, Mahalia Jackson, was one of the most powerful voice during the civil rights uh, movement befriended MLK during the National Baptist Convention in 1956. She would perform her song at many of his speeches in Selma Montgomery as he was practicing his famous I Have a Dream speech at the March of Washington, uh, March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom in 1963. She directly inspired that. And Martin Luther King had written his speech and he was, you know, trying to stick to the script and everything. And, and Mahalia said, tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. You know, and King pushed his notes aside and proceeded to tell them about, you know, I have a dream about and that, you know, that legendary cadence that we know and all of that. Somebody turned to the person next to, to them and said, these people are here. They don't know, but they're about ready to go up to church right now. Then you have people mm -hmm. like Harry Belafonte. Harry Belafonte said something very impressive to me. He said that artists are the gatekeepers of truth. He said, only through the world of the arts do we know who and what we are in the history of civilization. And long before historians, long before people ascribe themselves as caretaker of life and culture, the song did that. And in the black community, 
it was our primary tool of communication. So I saw the song as having something far more than something to delight audiences and people could dance and sing. It had content. And I began to see this as content of black protest music. Here we are with you, Mr. Bali. You um, you have your own platform that you call Liberation Arts. Could you help us sure. to explain? Because you're falling in the same mold as, as these guys that we just talked about. Uh, like I mentioned to you earlier, like when I was growing up, my first passion uh, was just like, was like the arts, really. And um, I just always try to use my art to like express how I feel and to show others like what, I, what was going on when I was when I was thinking and I was in my head, what's going on with me. And so that's one of the biggest tools that I've used because I'm real big on youth organizing and young adult organizing and involvement and empowerment. And the way that I know how to connect to most people the most is through the arts, through music, through poetry, hip hop, uh, visual art, DJing, dance, theater, whatever. You know what I'm saying? It connects with it connects with everybody. It's something that we are connected to. I love to stress the importance of how you can take what you're feeling inside and what you want to say to the world and do it artistically. And a lot more people will understand where you're coming from just with you using your creativity. And so I, I call it liberation arts because for one, it helps, you know what I'm saying, you to free yourselves of those those emotions, to finally get those thoughts and those opinions and that and all of that, that emotion, those emotions out of you. But at the same time, you help to free people's minds too, because they're thinking the same thing you're thinking a lot of times, or they, they just don't know how to express it. And everybody's art, you know, you can look at it, it's viewed by everybody's own discretion, but they see bits and pieces of what they feel inside of your art too as well. And so you help to liberate the people through your heart because you, you help free people's minds and they get the, that freedom to view your art, listen to your art, they get to grow, they get to change, they get to be who they are when they hear or they see what you do. And so that's why I use that platform as liberation arts for me personally, because it helps to inspire the youth. And when the youth get inspired, they can accomplish so much. They can accomplish so much. They they already have so many innovative ways to connect with people, but they, they are the people that have the most leisure time out of all of us. You know, they're not locked down to a lot of the responsibilities that we have. So they have way more free time on their hands to actually go out there and do the work and to talk to more people and to, and to get their people involved. A lot of times they have built in followers because they go to these schools or they, they're in these neighborhoods and these communities. You know, when you're in college, people enjoy that experience so much because that's the only time in your life you're going to live in a walkable community. And so, you know, when you're in those walkable communities, you connect with different people every day. And the arts are always going to be a part of those communities because it's everywhere. And so I feel like, you know, arts, liberation go hand in hand because arts are going to have a role in every social justice movement. And, and if you look at every movement through history, you're going to see uh, a powerful presence of the arts. When you were starting to make your art, what were your touchstones that, kind of sparked your interest like who did you look to what other artists did you you know um, emulate or who you know inspired you wow i'll try to keep it short visual art i was inspired by faith Ringmold, one of the greatest artists i know uh, her quilts quilts always had a special place in the black community and culture because they there was storytelling involved and if you ever seen a faith Ringmold quilt 
you got to witness like some of the most beautiful stories ever produced in in uh, in American culture, man, in Black culture. Uh, her quilts, man, just looking at those as a kid and just going through books and finding her work uh, was very inspiring to me. Gotta say Spike Lee. Every movie that I watched growing up of Spike Lee's, man, had a really big impact on me, even if I didn't understand it at the time. Just the visuals and the cinematography and the language that he used, the music that he picked out for his movie roles, I mean, for his movies, and the roles of different people, the characters that, that were in his movies, the name, even just the names that he gave people sometimes, that had a really big impact on me. What's your favorite uh, Spike Lee joint? Oh, God, why would you do this? Oh, <laughs> uh, um, I'll just say do the right thing. I'll just say do the right thing. Oh, uh, do yeah. the right no, thing? No, oh, okay. that's a good one. Okay, let me take it back. Let me take it back. Crooklyn. Crooklyn, okay. I'm going to say Crooklyn. Mo' Better Blues, School Days. I love all of them. I love all of them. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I have like every movie. Every movie is probably in the, the, the late 80s and 90s. Three artists, music artists that I'll say, I'll just say um, jazz artist by the name of Pharaoh Sanders, saxophonist. Man, just love his music. I love jazz. That's like my, 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 my go-to music is a calm down. I love jazz music. I love the relaxing to jazz that helps me write. I'm always impressed by people who love jazz. <laughs> jazz, so- is, jazz is infamy. I, I sit and watch jazz documentaries all the time because I just want to hear the music. And I wish I had an opportunity to just go listen live to more jazz because there's so many jazz artists that I want to see that I've never had the opportunity to see because they don't come to Arkansas. But... Uh, so Pharaoh Sanders, great saxophonist. He used to play, he was in John Coltrane's band, and he's revered as one of the greatest saxophonists in the history of jazz. Nas, one of my favorite rappers. Oh, mine too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Nas I used, is my favorite. Rapper. I used to literally know the words to probably every Nas song at one point. <laughs> so definitely one of my favorite rappers. I, yeah, I just leave it at, at that. Jessica Care Moore, Sonny Patterson, and Ursula Rucker, three women, three great poets. I've had the opportunity to perform with two of them, Jessica Caremore, Sonny Patterson, and Ursula Rucker. Love their poetry. Uh, they're like daughters of like Sonia Sanchez and oh. Gwendolyn Brooks. And Sonia Sanchez is the girl. absolute best. Yeah, so it, but these are like her daughters. They they all have like a way with words that you can just feel it when you hear them, you can feel it when you read it. So salute to Sonia Sanchez, too, because she's a really big resource. And I'm done. I can talk about all the artists that I can. I can talk about an hour about all the artists. I love them, man. So tell me about this happy black girl. I want I want to know what led you to write that. I want to be all up in your business because I want to I want to get this inspiration. Okay, we'll take a gander. Get all of my business. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So I wrote this song. <laughs> I wrote this song because I love the fact that black women embrace their natural hair. I'm on a natural high. And she don't have to play. I'm trying to take her home. Boy, you don't have to play. I'm trying to take her home. I love how that kinky hair don't like no cold. And so I make it a point. If I'm in public or around women, when they black women, when they're doing natural hair, I always try to give a compliment because I appreciate it. I know that it's not an easy process. There's a lot that goes into a natural hairstyle and making it look so beautiful. It's not a, it's not a whole effortless thing. I was 
just watching TV and I was watching videos on, lap, on my laptop and I was just noticing who the video girls were and what they look like in the songs and who's on TV. In my community, I see it, I see it all the time. I see natural hair and it was it's, I'm purposely around it. That's the type of people that I'm around. But media doesn't portray that. And a lot of times you see women who might be natural but have to do other things because they feel like that's... That's not what's perceived as beautiful. Yeah. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to stop talking about it. I'm going to just write a song. And that's how I ended up writing a song. And then we ended up shooting a great video to it, which got a lot of attention because I just wanted to include as many black women as I could possibly that had natural hair and just show the different looks and all the creativity that they each had. Like nobody looks same but everybody's hair had something different going on but it's all love and so it was basically just a call out and a shout out to all the black women out there who embracing their natural hair and at the same time I wanted to make a song that was uh, that little girls could listen to and watch and see and say hey I want to do my hair like that too well Mr. Bali you've given me a lot to work with <laughs> thank you so very much I am so grateful to you. Uh, this was such a pleasant conversation. Thank you so very much. All right, likewise. Thank you. Have a great Undisciplined is hosted by me, Karee Banton. We're produced by Matthew Moore at KUAF. And if you haven't yet, subscribe to Undisciplined for free wherever you can get podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>